You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Thank you for joining us for part two of our facelift and neck lift series. Today we will be talking about neck lift, both the anatomy, surgical indications, everything you need to know for the 2023 in-service exam. So without further ado, here we go. We're going to pick up right where we left off with myself, Dr. Morgan Martin, and Yusuf Arif from California University of Science and Medicine. If you have not already, go back and listen to part one facelift that is already posted to your favorite podcast site. Here is Necklift. All right, let's get into neck lifts. Can you take us through some basic anatomy for the neck? Sure. For neck anatomy, let's start with the skin. Here we're focusing on cervical rightids and skin excess. The amount of fat in the neck is found in the subcutaneous layers and can vary between the skin and the platysma muscle, as well as in the interplatysmal submental region. The fatty layer helps maintain the soft appearance of the neck and can be molded for addressing contours. Within the fatty layer, we have the anterior jugular veins, which we want to avoid whenever we work in the deep interplatysmal area. And if a dissection is done wrong in this plane, you can also run into veins such as the submental, lingual, pharyngeal, and superior thyroid veins. That's helpful to know since so many vascular structures are in the neck. What about the muscles of the neck? Well, the main muscle to focus on for neck lifts is the platysma, which spans the neck to give the neck its contour. The platysma originates on the pectoralis and deltoid fascia and inserts through its anterior fibers on the symphysis of the mandible and slightly lateral to the mandible, while the posterior fibers cross the mandible to insert on the superficial musculoaponeurotic system or SMAT. The platysma gets its main blood supply from a branch of the submental artery and minor supply from a branch of the suprasternal artery while being innervated by the cervical branch of the facial nerve. The platysma pulls on the lower lip and angle of the mouth, causing the oblique wrinkling of the skin of the neck. The platysma is covered by the superficial cervical fascia on its surface, while under the platysma is the deep cervical fascia, making a complete investment for the neck. The deep cervical fascia attaches to the symphysis and body of the hyoid bone and divides the neck laterally to enclose the sternocleidomastoid, and the investing portion is attached to the ligamentum nuchae and C7. Are there any specific features of the platysma we should be aware of for the appearance of the neck? Yes. Yeah, so there are three classic platysma decusation and interdigitation patterns that contribute to the submental neck contour. So type one is seen 75% of the time with a partial decusation in the midline, about one to two centimeters below the mandibular symphysis. Type two is seen 15% of the time with a total decusation from the mandible to the hyoid bone. Type 3 is seen 10% of the time with no interdigitation. These midline decusations can create a supportive sling, but when the decusation is absent, the free medial muscle edges fall away and create vertical bands, which everybody hates. <laughs> it's good to know all those features of the platysma since it plays such an important role in neck shape. Uh, can you tell us about the digastric muscle? Sure. The digastric muscle, as the name says, is two muscles joined by a tendon forming the submental triangle. The posterior muscle is longer and runs from the mastoid process on the temporal bone downward, forward, and medially, and is innervated by cranial nerve 7. The anterior muscle, on the other hand, runs near the symphysis down and posteriorly and is innervated by cranial nerve 5. 
Both bellies of the digastric muscle terminate in the central tendon. The anterior belly sometimes will be prominent and can be resected from a submental incision. And this is done all the time for those who have a little bit extra fullness in that area. For what about the nerves of the neck? Some things we should know about them. The marginal mandibular nerve is located at the tail of the parotid gland in a subplatismal plane. When posterior to the facial artery, the marginal mandibular nerve runs above the inferior border of the mandible 81% of the time, or up to one centimeter below the mandible the other 19% of the time. When anterior to the facial artery, all of the branches are above the inferior border of the mandible, and this innervates the depressor anguli oris, depressor labii inferioris, mentalis, part of the orbicularis oris, and rosorius. The danger zone with this nerve is usually a two centimeter radius circle located two centimeters posterior to the oral commissure. So you can use the two M's in the name of the nerve to remember that the danger zone is a two centimeter circle, two centimeters posterior to the angle to the oral commissure. This can be dangerous, especially when electrocautery is used. So make sure to take extra care when working in this area. And since we have lots of helpful information on the nerve and such a great mnemonic for the danger zone, uh, any other nerves we should be aware of during a necklace? Yes. So we also have the great auricular nerve. Again, on the tests. <laughs> I know I keep saying that, but, you know, <laughs> it's like one fifth or at least 25% of this section on the test every year. So the danger zone for this nerve, again, the great auricular nerve, is a three centimeter circle with the center at 6.5 centimeters inferior to the external auditory canal at the midpoint of the SCM. This nerve emerges beneath the SCM at 9 centimeters below the external auditory canal. Damage to the great auricular nerve can cause paresthesia and or anesthesia on the lower two-thirds of the ear and adjacent neck, cheek, skin, while sutures in the danger zone can compress the nerve as well. Again, there is always a question on the test. So hopefully we're almost there. So let's start talking about the submandibular glands. Sounds good. So first, the submandibular glands are located in the submental triangle with the facial artery embedded in a groove along their posterior and upper border and are crossed superficially by the marginal mandibular branch of the facial nerve. These submandibular glands are covered by skin, platysma, deep cervical fascia, and body of the mandible. Intracapsular resection superficial lobe of the submandibular gland is sometimes recommended because it is away from the facial vessels facial nerve, and lingual nerve, but be careful as dissected beyond this lobe can increase the risk of injury to these structures. Now that we made it through the anatomy, what are some things we want to focus on in the pre-op evaluation? So great question to go off for that one. So for the pre-op evaluation, it goes through the same anatomy we just went over, luckily. So first we want to examine the skin quality with the right kids, both at rest and with animation when the patient flexes the platysma and skin excess can suggest elasticity or lack thereof. And this is important because the quality of skin excess is inversely related to length of the excision required, which is always important in an aesthetic procedure like a necklace. In all short scar procedures, it's essential to have normal elasticity. Skin damage and actinic changes alone create an increased need to redrape the skin flap requiring a retroauricular incision. Skin excess can also help decide which direction to redrape because we absolutely want to avoid distorting the hairline. The directional pull should be slightly cephalad and mostly lateral with the vector being parallel to the cervical creases. Also, you differentiate an apparent skin excess because it redrapes after neck contouring, while real skin excess usually extends below the thyroid cartilage 
and posteriorly beyond the SCM. Well, it definitely shows how important skin evaluation is for a neck lift. What about other areas for pre-op evaluation? So we also want to evaluate for subcutaneous and preplatismal fat. These can be differentiated from excess subplatismal fat by pinching the supplemental area at rest and after contraction of the platysma muscles. Any displaced fat can contribute to totic jowls and a loss of definition in the inferior mandibular border from platysmal laxity and mandibular ligament attenuation. Now, as for the platysma, you want to focus on the static and dynamic banding. Check for imperfections in the neck and jaw shadows and assess the neck-face interface to determine how facial soft tissues affect the jawline. As for the digastric muscles, remember that they bulge below the inferior border of the mandible, and if they're too prominent, then there can be persistent bulging after fat removal from the neck. So make sure to keep that in mind when planning fat removal for a neck lift. Okay, so we need to factor in these inherent features of the skin and muscle for each patient to make sure we are not doing too much, which can lead to other problems that we would need to revise later. Exactly. We also want to evaluate the submandibular glands for ptosis and bring this up with the patient as well, since this could lead to difficulties with the procedure or not meet the patient's expectations for the neck lift. Evaluate the glands by looking for a bulge below the mandibular rim within the submandibular triangle. You can have the patient flex their neck to accentuate a submandibular gland deformity as well. Next, evaluate the mandibulocutaneous ligament. This ligament can cause the appearance of jowls from tethering of the relaxing facial tissues here. Feel the volume of the jowling tissue with the patient's supine to check the need for liposuction of the fat pad or simply tightening the smathplatysma laterally. Lastly, assess the projection of the chin compared to all facial proportions, since an alloplastic chin implant or osseous genioplasty can be done to complement neck contours. Now that we've finished the pre-op evaluation, what are some of the visual criteria for a youthful neck for both pre- and post-operative evaluation? So a youthful neck should have a distinct inferior mandibular border, visible subhyoid depression, visible thyroid cartilage bulge, a visible anterior border of the SEM, and a cervicomental angle of 105 to 120 degrees. So with those goals in mind for a youthful neck, what are our options for neck rejuvenation and what are the purposes of these techniques? So our option for surgical approaches are suction lipectomy only, submental cervicoplasty, short scar facelift without submental incision with a lateral pull, short scar facelift with submental incision for a direct view, full scar facelift without submental incision, also with a lateral pull, or full scar facelift with a submental incision, also for a direct view. And these options are directed at addressing superficial tissues, the skin and subcutaneous fat, intermediate tissues, the platysma, fat line between the two muscles, and lymph nodes and deep tissues, which are the subplatysmal fat, digastric muscles, submandibular glands, and subhyoid fascia. So those give us a few options to work with. What are the indications for each option? So liposuction alone is indicated for young patients with good dermal quality and localized fat. Submental neck lifts are indicated for direct viewing of the internal neck anatomy and when our neck exam shows things like platysmal banding. Undermining may be needed in a submental neck lift for recontouring, because it can be done alone or with a facelift. A short scar neck and facelift is indicated in patients with no excess neck skin, 
when jowling is present, and there is an aged neck-face interface, while a full scar neck and facelift is indicated in patients with aging changes in the face and neck, as well as inelastic and excess lower and posterior neck skin. Can you give us some technical tips on each option? Sure. In liposuction alone, you want to make the incision in the submental neck area and or behind the earlobes. A two to three millimeter single hole cannula is recommended for suction assisted lipectomy. If you use ultrasound assisted lipectomy, 50% energy UAL with a two millimeter solid probe for no longer than two to three minutes is recommended. If this is the only procedure, then no drains are required. And finally, use a compression garment. Keep in mind that small quantities of aspirate can create big differences. After suctioning the neck, platysmal banding that was only seen on animation or other underlying irregularities may become evident. Some things to be aware of as well, you must avoid over-suctioning. You want to leave three to five millimeters of fat on the skin to give it a soft contour and prevent scarring and tethering to the underlying platysma. Excessive fat removal is a common error that is difficult to reverse. Remember, it is easier to take out more fat than to introduce fat in this area. Lastly, avoid repeat passes within tunnels and instead make crisscross strokes. In a submental neck lift, make sure to extend the patient's neck. Make the incision just posterior to the submental crease to prevent scarring that may deepen the crease. Release the crease anteriorly from underlying tissues. The interplatysmal or subplatysmal fat excision may be performed in addition to subcutaneous deep fatting. If a lymph node is seen in the fatty layer, you can resect that as well. Leave adequate subcutaneous fat to prevent a submental depression, and this is actually known as a cobra deformity, and it's really obvious on exam, so don't do that. So here, the mandibular ligaments can be released as a dissection is continued forward and laterally. So basically from that submental incision, you're going anteriorly to get those mandibular ligaments, and it's really easy. Tangential or partial resection of the anterior belly of the digastric muscles can also be performed through this incision. Use a hemostat to partially divide it halfway through the thickness of the muscle. With this approach, you can also consider a piecemeal intracapsular submandibular gland resection. Some things to be aware of with a submental neck lift. So discuss complications with the patient, such as increased risk of bleeding. Specifically, if you're going after the submandibular glands, you got to tell them there's risk of bleeding with this. However, it may be worth it if it means they get a better neck. Also, increased risk of nerve injury, dry mouth, or salivary fistula. If the submandibular gland is partially removed, a drain can be placed deep to the platysma after that layered closure. Also, a note that not all surgeons have accepted the necessity of digastric or submandibular gland resection because of the risk and complications while advocating for more conservative maneuvers such as suspension sutures or placismal suturing to support the totic submandibular gland. Now, can you take us through any non-operative techniques for neck lifts and rejuvenation? Of course. So the main non-operative technique for a neck lift is a Botox injection. Botox is a good non-surgical intervention for patients with prominent platysmal bands but little or no skin excess, patients who are not surgical candidates, or patients with recurrent platysmal bands after prior neck rejuvenation. And the recommended amount is about 5 to 100 units of neurotoxin injected per band. So 100 units would be a lot, but I don't know, maybe maybe some people need that much. So 
But yes, it is always helpful when Botox can come in handy for neck rejuvenation. So if we want to get Botox injected uh, by the band, what is the proper technique and what are some complications of Botox here? Yeah, so during injection, you want to grab the platysma between your fingers and inject at one centimeter interval. Complications from Botox in the neck are dysphagia, high doses, edema, ecchymosis, neck discomfort, and weakness. Can you tell us a little bit more about the operative techniques? Yeah, the platysma is continuous with the SMAS, and it can be imbricated, placated, incised, lengthened, or suspended, so all the things. There are so many ways to manipulate this, just like the SMAS in the face. So typically, there is some combination of possible division of the platysma. If there is banding, then midline placation and suspension laterally to the mastoid fascia. And what about the skin? So managing neck skin differs from facial skin because usually neck skin does not need um, a lot to be excised since it can redrape and redistribute for excellent results. If the excision is needed, then you can use a retroauricular or hairline incision based on how much skin you need to remove. Let's move on to post-op management. What do we want to keep in mind for post-op management after a neck lift? So for post-operative management after a neck lift, we have a few things to focus on. Uh, first, tell patients to avoid pillows that flex the neck so they can keep the cervical mental angle open. They should also avoid folding neck skin flaps because this can obstruct neck lymphatics leading to edema. Without applying pressure, cotton dressings or foam tape can be applied with an elastic garment or on the wound overnight for any weft fluids. Monitor blood pressure with beta blockers like metoprolol or clonidine, which is an alpha agonist uh, to maintain normal tensive systolic blood pressure and prevent hematomas. You can give oral analgesics and antiemetics as well. Make sure patients are aware to avoid alcohol until they have stopped their pain medications. Antibiotics and drains are up to the surgeon's preference. Drains can potentially reduce post-op edema and should be removed on post-op day one after examining the patient. Also on post-op day one, uh, remove the operative dressing and replace it with a neck strap. Patients shouldn't wear the neck strap for more than four weeks, though, and sutures should be removed at seven days follow-up. Patients can shower and wash their hair starting 24 to 48 hours after surgery to help keep their sutures clean. And lastly, patients are advised to avoid strenuous activity for six weeks. Good to know. What are the main complications of a neck lift? Well, first, the overall hematoma rate in, is about 3% in women and 8% in men and hypertensive patients. Uh, and some of this might sound familiar to uh, the facelift complications as well. A higher incidence of hematoma has been associated with preoperative systolic blood pressure greater than 140, that big number that Dr. Martin's been mentioning. Yeah. The marginal mandibular nerve injury is the most common in neck lift procedures, but injury to the cervical branch can also occur and may mimic marginal mandibular injury. And you can distinguish cervical branch injury from marginal mandibular nerve injury by the patient being able to evert their lower lip thanks to the mentalis still being functional. Idiopathic trauma to the GAN can cause temporary loss of sensation to a portion of the ear, scalp, or face. Skin sloughing, often preceded by hematoma or infection, is most common in the retroauricular area. Underestimating submental fat removal is often caused by fatty deposits deep to the platysma. Oversection of fat is an area that is difficult to correct and leaves a hollowed-out appearance, especially in the submental region. Can you wrap us up with some last key points for the topic? 
Sure, absolutely. Let's summarize the main points. When evaluating a neck for cervicoplasty, evaluate the mid-phase for an ideal combined result. So patients rarely need cervicoplasty only. Diligently examine facial proportions, including chin projection. If the skin is sun damaged and inelastic, a full periauricular incision is required. Submental approach to neck lift will improve a patient's profile, cervical mental angle, and jawline, but does not address the neck face aging above mandibular border or angle. Do not over-resect fat. Leave three to five millimeters of subcutaneous cushion on the flap. Look and gently pinch the neck to consider the need for fat removal. Evaluate muscles and banding with an anterior platysmoplasty. The neck is better consolidated, but this does not suffice to treat banding. A division of the platysma must be performed to solve the problem. The height of the myotomy is usually at the level of the cricoid cartilage. The best results provide harmony of all facial proportions. Finally, discuss the risk of procedures thoroughly with patients and set realistic goals and expectations. This was a long episode, but we hope it covered everything for the in-service exam. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and your favorite podcast platform to stay in the loop.